Hello, and welcome to Life Stories, a Beatrice.com podcast, where I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. I'm Ron Hogan, and I first met my guests today back in the 90s when we were both in San Francisco, and she was a spoken word artist performing in nightclubs in the city. She has been doing that and other things ever since, and she now has a collection of autobiographical vignettes called Yokohama Three-Way. It's published by City Lights, and I am delighted to have Beth Lizick here to talk about it. Hi, Beth. Hello, Ron. I'm glad to have you here in my apartment. The stories in Yokohama Three-Way, they actually do go back to things that I think were originally written during your spoken word career in the 90s. There were a lot of pieces from that. A lot of, of what I did with the book is that I tried to come up with all the things that I could think about that, that literally made me cringe when I remembered them. And so that was kind of my guideline. If it was a thing, a memory that kind of came back to haunt me. And there are, I feel like when you put yourself in that position of getting up on stage and trying to do something new, there are a lot of embarrassing <laughs> things I feel like that happened during that time. But it also encompasses, oh, the full spectrum of your life, let's yes. say. So that organizing principle of things that made you cringe that goes as far back as childhood. And it seems like it, might be as recent as within the last year or so. Yeah, I think there are a couple more recent ones. I've definitely, I feel like it's heavy on the, heavy on the 90s for sure. And yeah, there are some from when I was a kid. And, and really what I tried to do was not dig too deep to find these pieces, but that, that when I made a list of how many I could just come up with off the top of my head, I had a list of 60 or so just that I could remember. Oh, that was terrible. God, that was embarrassing. Oh, I wish that never happened. And, and, and I liked organizing that way. Since then, I've come up with some other ones that I thought, oh, why didn't I include that? And it was really because if they were so horrible that I couldn't forget them, then it wouldn't have taken me that long to remember them. You know what I'm saying? Like, so I really tried to get to the ones that are the, the big ones for me. Yeah, the, those other ones, those, those scars don't run so deep. Yeah, exactly. Now, let's talk a little bit about what you were doing in the 90s because, you know, spoken word artist is a really kind of nebulous term. And I don't think it really fully gets into what you were doing in that period. Because, I mean, I remember seeing you, as I say, in places like Café du Nord. But you were also publishing, you had a lot of books in the late 90s and I think early uh, 2000s. It was Manic D, right? Yeah, I had two books on Manic D. Uh, Monkey Girl, which was mostly a collection of things that I was doing on stage, things that I had written for the stage and not necessarily ever thought would be published in a book. Uh, then I did a book called This Too Can Be Yours, which was mostly fiction with a couple autobiographical pieces thrown in there, but in a kind of storytelling type way. And that came out, I think, in 2000. Yeah. So I did performances and I had a band and I would do performances with the band. And then I was also at, at some point in the later 90s starting to write just for, for the page, I guess. What prompted you these days? What was sort of the thing that was like, got you thinking about, you know, like, here are all these things that have made me cringe. You know, wouldn't it be great to take all these? I mean, who decides that it'd be great to take all these mortifying moments? <laughs> well, okay. So I'd written two, I had two books that came out on HarperCollins, William Morrow and Regan books that were autobiographical things. And I felt like it was, I was really tired of trying to write about myself in this way where I was creating a character and I had to make that character funny, yet smart, yet accessible, yet a little bit crazy, yet like we're making this balance of this character to be suitable 
for editors at a big publishing house to say like, oh, this is relatable. You seem so, so, you know, nice and a little bit messed up, a little bit quirky. I didn't like having to present myself in this way that I felt pressured to. And so I decided to start writing this novel. And, and after I began the novel, I thought, okay, I'm never writing about myself again. And then I remembered, God, I have so many amazing stories that are just little vignettes and little moments, really, that aren't, did never found themselves into essays or big stories. And so it was almost like, for me, the nail in the coffin of autobiographical work is that I was just like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to come up with everything that I can think of about my life that I think is funny, interesting, weird, terrible, and put it in this book and then move on. I I felt like it really freed me up to start writing fiction, is that I had to go through and mine everything that I thought was interesting and put it out there in a way that I felt good about. Some of them are letters and some of them are kind of prose poems and, and just that it was sort of this collection. We brought it to my other publisher, my old publisher, William Morrow, and they were like, oh, you know, I think that what we really need is just 10 longer funny essays again. And we, if you want to do that, we'd love to publish it. And I was like, I don't know. I don't think maybe, I mean, maybe someday, never say never, but I really felt like that's, it's what I had to do creatively for myself at that time is, is write those things down. Yeah. It's interesting to think of it in terms of that transition, because I remember when the first of your, your HarperCollins books came out, the one where you were putting yourself through the various self-help uh -huh. documents. And as somebody who had known you, as we've talked about back in the day, the idea that this, to me, underground star was reaching this new mainstream level was was really cool that everyone else was going to get to finally figure out about this Beth Lizza character that I'd been, I'd been telling people about. And there's an essay, sort of a longer vignette in Yokohama Freeway, where you talk about a parallel experience, I think, the one where you were recruited for the TV show. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, looking at it from your perspective, you know, this idea of whether it's on the literary side or on the TV side, having to take on this new persona, which is sort of like you, but... From your side of things, also sort of not like you. Yeah, that's the thing is I just don't think I'm very good at it. Like I think for some people, they get presented these opportunities and it's like, wow, finally they have a chance to reach a larger audience and it feels like they're being themselves and doing that. But I constantly felt this struggle like, God, this doesn't feel like me. Like there are elements of me that I can see why somebody would ask me to, you know, host a TV show or or, you know, it's like I, I'm a performer and I've been out there doing things and I can talk to a lot of different kinds of people. But there's also like that's not, it doesn't end there. You know, there's a lot of things about having to to censor yourself and present yourself in a, in a certain way that just I think I'm just a little bit too weird to to do that. And I didn't feel comfortable or I didn't know how or I wasn't willing or something to go into that mold. And I think the mold is pretty big. I mean, you can be on TV or have best-selling popular essay books and be a little weird, but it just, for some reason, it there was just a disconnect between who I really was and who I felt like I was expected to be. That disconnect, you know, it's so clear in the TV story on the on the producer's part where it's like, yeah, let's get Beth to like go through this like personal grooming regimen, tanning and, and a few other things. And I'm thinking as, as this story is unfolding, it's like, how are they not recognizing that Beth's take on this is going to be that it feels incredibly awkward right. and makes, and, and self-conscious. 
And they're obviously trying to craft this narrative of us like, oh, I went tanning and did all these other beauty things and now I feel great. Right. (laughs) I mean, I know. I think that that's, you know, I think it's people not knowing me well enough. And and also, you know, the fact of me not knowing myself well enough to be like, can I really do this? Because I often through in life, you know, I test myself. By doing things and thinking like, oh, I'll try to, I'll try to do that. Maybe that's going to be my thing, and I can, I can actually do that. And I, like, I used to think my brother's an advertising writer uh, living here in New York City and makes a lot of money and like has a good life. And, and I just always think, oh man, maybe I should have done that. It'd be so much less angst. Like I could make money writing and I could still try to be creative. And and then I thought, well, wait a minute, I could not physically do that. I could not go into an office every day and try to sell pop tarts and shoes and like and and it's just. I think that it's taken me a really long time to kind of figure out what my limitations are, but then also in another way that kind of embraced my strengths. And and so this book to me just really feels like me. Like it really feels like it's exactly how I wanted it to be written and it's exactly the kind of pieces I wanted in it. So that, you know, and it's with City Lights and not with HarperCollins. <laughs> and that feels great too, to have been in San Francisco and be working getting a chance to work with them. You mentioned money and and career, and that is certainly something that comes up. I mean, th- some of the essays or vignettes that stand out for me in this collection are the ones where you are c- directly confronting your position as a then-struggling artist with the dot-com wealthy in Silicon Valley. There's one section where you get hired to be like a children's book group leader. Yeah. That really sort of... <laughs> contrasts how your relationship to that world and you know there's two there were two different groups within that story right the the rich people who i actually got along with and really liked and then the the other group that was where the lady was horrible to me yeah i i think that that i've i've had a lot of experiences and i pay really close attention to class stuff and money stuff it's really interesting to me to be somebody who grew up in a really stable two-parent middle-class suburb in San Jose where everybody at my high school almost went to college. I mean, probably like 99% of the people went to college and a lot of people live in that area still and are very wealthy. And it just, it's just funny to me sometimes when I realize like, God, I, that is not my world now at all, but yet I grew up in that world. And it seems like I should have just, if you look at the situation, like how did I not, how did I grow up to be this, this broke writer, you know, living in an unfinished apartment right now. It's just kind of like, I don't know, but a lot of it has been doing what I want to do, which is mostly writing, performing, traveling, raising my son. And, and so in that way, of course, I feel, I'm totally, I'm totally stoked with my life. I feel like the one thing that really comes down to is money. And that's what totally fascinates me. How do, there's so many rich people that that like I've come in contact with and I just am like how do they get that money it's fascinating I would imagine living in New York now because I mean I live in New York and when I read the times like there was a story last night in the times oh, God. about the nanny one the nanny one <laughs> mm-hmm. about teaching your nanny how to how to find organic pears at yeah. Whole Foods <laughs> yeah the amazing thing to me was like you know there are these consultants who make $2,500 a pop teaching rich people's nannies how to shop at Whole Foods. Right. And I'm sitting there reading this and I'm like, man, I picked the wrong major or something. I know. I know. I think that so many of us go through that. Like, 
got, and then that's kind of what I was saying about my brother is that I, for so long, I would always just be like, oh man, I should have done that. I could do that. And then just really coming to the conclusion, like, actually, no, I couldn't. Like we couldn't Ron. We could not be the personal shoppers for those rich families because we would go insane and we would say things that would get us fired and we wouldn't be good at it because of certain, the certain ways that we are that just like you, you, you can't be that way and have those jobs. I don't think you, you would get fired sooner or later. Right? Because you'd be suppressing part of who you are to do that, and it would be too painful. And it becomes fascinating to me the idea of loving what we do, you know, doing the thing that we love doing. And in this particular case, the thing that makes you content is putting together a collection of all the moments <laughs> that have made you miserable. I know, I know. But that that also, I think, is because I'm fascinated, right, by failure and shame. And, and, and that's how I've always defined myself as not like by the things that I do really well, but by the things where it just seems like, God, I could have done that well and I didn't. And of course, like that's how we learn and, and grow as people. But but there is also something really deep in there that I, I love, I you know, embarrassment and shame. Like I just feel like that's that's so much of who we are and so much of who we try to hide from the world. Even just being a person sitting in a cafe, spilling your tea and dropping something and having everybody look at you and having that moment where, where you're like, well, I'm 44 years old. Why do I care if I just kind of like made a mess in the cafe and people all looked at me? But in that moment, it does feel like, oh, God, really? And so I, I just, I like getting under the parts of us that are, that are real and true and that, that we're not supposed to present to the world. And even when you do present them to the world, I mean, because you've been presenting them to the world in various forms for a while throughout your career. And I'm thinking back to the 90s when you were talking about these things on stage and realizing how much you sort of identify with the the failures and the missteps. And while I'm sure I'm not the only person in San Francisco in 96 and 97 who was like, oh my God, Beth Lizig is living the dream. <laughs> Why? Because I was... Because you because you were performing and, and you know you were in The thing. Guardian and people, knew, and people knew who you were. It's funny because I, I kind of feel like getting attention for that. I mean, having people respond well to it and getting attention for it was something that kept me going because I, I don't think that I would be one of those people who would just, I needed the encouragement to keep going. And, and I think that it never, I don't know, like I always, I always felt like there's so much shame and regret and humiliation to go around that it kind of always renews itself. And I felt like I had to, like I was saying, like get all of that out to a certain point, like it's why I've always drawn from my own life and my writing almost exclusively is because I feel like I have to get that stuff out, something that I know really well, like really deeply, my own mistakes and things and situations before I could actually venture out to do something else. And I don't know if that, I mean, a lot of people don't have that problem, obviously, and can just like write about all sorts of topics and not, but I feel like it's taken, like I'm a slow learner or something, and it's taken me this long to get to a point where I feel comfortable writing about other people and other lives and, and writing fiction and things like that, because I had to fully do as much as I could do with my own life first. So yeah, when you, when I, I just, 
I don't know. It's, it is funny to look back and think like, God, I've been doing that for almost 20 years, really. Holy shit. <laughs> I know that something that I've experienced is that, and, I, and maybe there's something similar for, for you, that, you know, when people come up to me and say, oh, you've done all this great stuff. On the one hand, I'm grateful for that. But on the other hand, I also think about all the stuff that has been left on the table uh-huh. that I have not yet gotten around to doing or that, you know, had been abandoned or, or didn't work out. And it feels like another form of that definition by failure thing that, that you were talking about before. Yeah, well, I think, too, like, I've always been interested in things that, like, with the, the self-help book or whatever, like, when I did that the year of doing all these self-help programs, I thought like, well, what would it be like if Mary Roach did this book? Or what would it be like if Ron Hogan did this book? You know, you just look out like who, like everybody would take, come to that project and pick different people to follow, have different experiences, have a different thing. And I, and I felt like with this book, it really does get you thinking about like, well, what would be my top 50 shame? People have said to me, oh my God, I can't believe you remember all those. How could you come up with all of those? And I, and that's interesting to me too. And it's interesting to me that some things that are, I feel so embarrassed about, like the dog towel story, like using my, the dog towel at my friend's house, because I was like, oh, the nice towels are for other people. And, and, and how that totally resonated with me and was so horrible for me because I thought, oh my God, that's some expression of how I feel about myself that I would think that I have to use the dog towel but some other people would be like oops I used the wrong towel who cares you know and so I like that part of it too like everybody has their own and some things that totally embarrass me other people would not be embarrassed by at all and conversely some things that I do that I'm not ashamed of other people would be mortified so I like I don't know I like things that can be really personal and yet universal in this way that everybody can has their own thing that kind of goes with it i did a podcast a while back with danny shapiro mm-hmm. and she was talking about the idea that memoir is something that you end up addressing like the scars that go the deepest mm-hmm. in her case those two memoirs were about big narratives mm-hmm. and yokohama three-way the connections between all these, you know, if we're going to call them scars, mm-hmm. you know, aren't necessarily so obvious, but it's clear that it's like this little constellation of of moments that have stuck with you for the reasons that you're describing. Yeah, the, the somebody that I did an interview with recently called it like 48 pieces of damning memory loop. And and it kind of is like these, these, these bits. It's almost like I see that as like these little splices of tape put together or like you said, like a constellation. And I really like, I've always liked that in writing, is trying to write something that's very small and very specific instead of, like when I wrote Everybody Into the Pool and had those essays, I just wanted them to be the stories and the themes that related to them. Like I didn't want to take a vacation in Reykjavik with like a Nina Simone song with a memory of a past boyfriend with a, you know, and put them all together and try to create like this big, huge overarching thought on, on loss or, or sentimentality or pain or something like that. And I, I think that's one of the reasons why I was just happy to be able to write the, that book in that form is that it just feels like that's just all it is. It's just all these little sh- short, small things. And when they're put together, they make something, but I'm not going to tell anybody what they make and people can infer from it what they will. And mm-hmm. so I just kind of figured that out recently that it's like, oh yeah, I always do that. Like I always keep stuff 
really small and I try not to draw big connections. Yeah, that if people are, are asking themselves, you know, well, what is the point of Yokohama three-way that it's like you're, you're actually probably still figuring that out for yourself. Yeah, like I feel like it's almost like a pointillist portrait or something in, in a way. It's like something that is... It's definitely the first piece of writing since I very first started doing spoken word stuff that I felt compelled to do. Like, I really felt like I have to write this book. I have to write these pieces. And I don't know exactly why, but I do think that it's all these little parts making up something that feels significant to me as a writer and a person. And and, and also somebody who's done a lot of memoir, I, I felt like, oh yeah, this has to be done. This is something that needs to needs to be written how it's going to be written in order to sort of complete how I feel as a memoir writer. Like it, I felt like I couldn't move on to that novel until I had significantly explored all of this garbage. <laughs> now that you've purged the system or, or, re, or rebooted the system, uh -huh. I guess, how is the novel writing coming? It's great. I feel, I feel so liberated by writing fiction. Like I just felt like I was in the... Especially with the uh, helping me help myself, I felt like I'd gotten into a into a some kind of a sinkhole where I couldn't adequately express myself because I felt like I didn't want to offend people and I didn't want to. I wanted to be personal, but I felt like it couldn't be. They got more personal than I wanted to. I wanted to be funnier than it was. Like I had such a and now and then when I started writing this novel. I just felt like, oh my God, I can say anything. And, and that feels super great. Well, that gives us something to look forward to in years ahead. Yeah. But you. for right now, there is Yokohama three-way and other stories. And you have probably noticed at this point that I have not gotten into the Yokohama three-way story. And I am leaving that for you all to discover for yourselves. <laughs> Good one, Ron. Good it's, one. It's published by City Lights. And I've been talking with Beth Lizick about it. I'm Ron Hogan, and you have been listening to Life Stories. I hope you'll join me again for another episode soon. Thanks for listening. Take care.